0: Hello everyone, and welcome to the third season of our broadcast, the podcast brought to you by the Journal of International Affairs at Columbia University's School of International and Public Affairs, your premier source for exploring issues of global importance. My name is Chris Smith, your host for our broadcast. Today we'll be talking about the evolving role that technology companies have played in world events. And here with me to discuss this topic is Amelia Probosco. Amelia is a senior fellow at Georgetown Center for Security and Emerging Technology where she works on issues involving the military application of artificial intelligence. Before joining in Georgetown, Amelia worked as the chief communications officer and communications department head at the Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Laboratory. While there, she led technical and institutional communications in support of the laboratory's strategic vision. And prior to working at the laboratory, she served as a surface warfare officer in the United States Navy. While in the Navy, Amelia deployed twice to the Indo-Pacific, wrote speeches for the Chief of Naval Operations, and was a political science instructor at the Naval Academy. Amelia, thank you for joining us today.
1: Thanks so much, Chris. I'm excited to chat about this.
0: Wonderful. Uh, So for our listeners, just so they're aware, you recently published an uh, article with Christine Fox on how big tech goes to war in in the magazine Foreign Affairs. Uh, within the article, you kind of talk about how uh, technology companies have taken on a more active role in in this conflict, um, which kind of seems outside the norm. Can you provide a couple of like insights or examples of where technology companies uh, have expanded their roles during the Russia-Ukraine conflict that most people are not aware of, or you know, who who may not be following this uh, conflict closely?
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's um, been a lot of really interesting stuff going on in Ukraine, and I know a lot of folks have been watching it, um, but just to be clear, there are a ton of companies that are engaged in Ukraine in a whole variety of different ways. The ones that um, Christine and I talked about in the article and the ones that we think are different and particularly interesting are examples where particularly large, um, but really different sized tech companies got engaged in the conflict, but not under a contract they sort of did it of their own accord. So some examples, uh, Microsoft is one of the big ones. They defended the Ukrainian infrastructure against Russian attacks. Um, They put out very sort of public reports, almost like Intel reports about what they were doing and who was attacking um, the Ukrainian infrastructure. So that's sort of one example of Microsoft. Microsoft wasn't the only one. You had other big tech companies get involved, um, we didn't write about it in the article, but Google um, had, you know, they did things like elevate trusted news sources and then try and combat disinformation or misinformation. They had a um, threat analysis group sort of look at what was going on. Amazon similarly, uh, they actually were focused on migrating Ukrainian, the Ukrainian government's data to the cloud in the midst of the conflict. So you have those big tech giants and, um, a, Particularly in the case of Microsoft, they were doing it because they thought it was the right thing to do, which is which is interesting and a bit different. Um, but not to be limited to those big tech companies. There's also companies that you've heard of like Starlink, which is um, part of SpaceX. Um, so Starlink enabled combat-relevant communications for civilians, but also for the military on the ground. You had other satellite companies like Capella or Maxar who are satellite imagery companies that were sharing their images as what they call data philanthropy to the world, to the news outlets, but also, again, militarily relevant to understand where different assets are to see pictures of the ground in Ukraine. And then you also had... um, other companies like a company called Primer or Primer, depending on um, whether you speak the Queen's English or American English or the King's English, I suppose. Um, but uh, Primer is uh, it applies natural language processing machine learning to, um, in this case, they were capturing unencrypted Russian transmissions, um, translating it from the Russian to the English and then sort of extracting the relevant information And then Clearview AI, um, they got engaged because they do computer vision and they can recognize images of people. And so they were providing information to the Ukrainian government so that the Ukrainians could see, um, you know, they could identify potential war crimes. They could also identify um, casualties and, and sort of get a better picture on the ground. So it was a wide range of companies that were, engaged, the ones that I just listed were the ones that got engaged with a particular technological capability, and not necessarily under a government contract.
0: Well, what you kind of mentioned uh, a few parts here, I think I find fascinating, because, you know, in, in the United States military, we have like our own intelligence uh, community, we they they do a lot of the signals intelligence, you have, you know, the NRO, the NGA, um, for imagery, um, you have the NSA for signals collection. And it almost sounds like these companies kind of all banded together and provided their own intelligence capability, um, uh, and defense network in a way for, for Ukraine in, the, in this, in this scenario. Um, which to me, I feel like this hasn't really happened to this extent, maybe in world war two, but I mean, in, in present day, I would say like, this is a relatively new phenomena because, um, when when I look at you know the actions too, some companies seem to like they did it right away, and I've seen like companies like Microsoft. also say like, hey, we're doing this because not to necessarily like actively engage with with Russia, but it's because it's for the benefit of our own products and customers as well. Um, there's like a an internal you know purpose behind it. At least at least it kind of at- sounds like that. But then uh, you also wonder too, because I remember uh, in your guys' article you talked about like Starlink, and you just mentioned them as well. And how they're providing like the communications uh, for a lot of the Ukraine government and military also, but also like actively fighting off an attack, not just being passive players within within that conflict themselves. But that also kind of seems to be a little bit like at the goodwill and nature of these companies, because you said they're not under contract. So are they losing money? Are they gaining money? Is it just for publicity? I feel like these are some of the, the questions that people come up with sometimes when they see, you know, why why this conflict uh versus other conflicts as well around the world.
1: Yeah. I mean, there's a bunch of really interesting stuff that you just said. I mean, one is that you said they kind of banded together to have this outsized influence. And and I think um I picked that out because they they didn't actually band together. They all took a bunch of independent actions, which is one of the things that I think is so interesting about what's happening. Um, if they didn't even necessarily band together with the United States government, they were making decisions based on their own internal calculus about what to do, when to do it, how to do it. Um, and you heard competing narratives from these companies. Microsoft's Brad Smith is, is quite vocal. He's got these long blog posts that detail the what and why um, and the sort of the philosophy behind Microsoft. And then on the opposite side of the spectrum, you've got Sort of the Elon Musk tweets about what they are or are not going to do, um, you know, which which can be a little mysterious um, and difficult to actually interpret. But they didn't they didn't necessarily band together. They all took these independent actions. So that's really interesting um, and a big contrast to what you saw in World War II, which was. Hey, Ford went all in, but Ford was under contract to produce something that the United States military was going to use. So just very, very different in that regard. Um, But the other second point that you brought up that I want to focus on is the why did they do it? And you picked out from the article one of the things. It's not easy. You can't say they are doing it um, because it's all about profits. It's it's not. The decisions that they made incurred a lot of risk. And I don't think you can say it was all about profit. I don't think you can say it was all about publicity. Um, and, and I don't think you can completely dismiss that there are leaders in these companies and individuals in these companies who believe in the cause of democracy and believe in um, defending Ukraine and took actions based on those beliefs. Um, So it's a complicated mix that folks should take a step back and attempt to understand, because you can't, if you want to project forward what they might do, when they might do it, you kind of need to understand what motivates them. In the case of Microsoft, like you pointed out, they have globally, they are globally engaged in uh, control systems. And so if they patch, if there's an attack against a Microsoft system, if they patch that, they made it better for everybody. Therefore, their product is better. So that seems like a pretty straightforward decision. Um, In the case, you know, in the Starlink case, they had already tried to get into Ukraine. They were trying to set up service in Ukraine before the war started. But according to the press reports, they hadn't gotten all the paperwork signed off, essentially. And when they saw a tweet come across um, saying, hey, Elon Musk, why, while you're exploring Mars, why can't you help out Ukraine? They viewed that as tacit, like, "Yeah, your paperwork's signed. Now, you know, you can operate and And that was part of their business plan. Um, but then in other cases, and all of the companies have this to some extent, but I'll pick on the satellite companies in particular, they very much said that the reason they were sharing their data, mostly imagery, was philanthropic. It was part of their environmental social good and the company values, which is great, because I think you know there's been decades of work on having corporate social responsibility. It's just interesting to see how that notion of corporate social responsibility has maybe evolved from things like environmental awareness or diversity inclusion efforts to now these sort of democracy, national security type zone of effort. Um, Maxar in its uh, quarterly report to investors puts its work to Ukraine under environmental social good and calls it data philanthropy. And it's just interesting to think about um, a you know why did they decide that that was appropriate data philanthropy? I mean, I, I think it was great data philanthropy, but just understanding why so that we under before we get to the next situation, we have a sense of where things are headed. Um, but also under what conditions might they not share? Um, And, oh, by the way, they have a lot of data. (laughs) Microsoft's got a lot of touch points. Maxar's got a ton of data. Starlink's got a ton of capability. All these companies are uh, tremendously capable actors on the international stage.
0: I think that's fascinating what you just said. You know, like, they are huge actors on the international stage. And, you know, when Russia invaded Ukraine, it seems like a very clear-cut, you know, uh, conflict for them to get involved in. However, I look around the world and I see, you know, there's like 55 active conflicts going around. Um, some of them civil wars, some of them coups, you know, you, you name it. Um, but I wonder like, why, why hasn't some of these companies gotten involved in Myanmar when the military overthrew the, you know, government there and, you know, you have these human rights activists, you have student protests, um, but we don't see as much interest, I would say, or overt support as we do with Ukraine. Um, and I mean, maybe even Iran, I can see where there may be some, you know, political issues there as well. Um, so I mean, I just wonder, like, you know, why why this conflict versus other conflicts when when companies say we're doing this based on our values but it's a very selective application of values then at that point. Um, Yeah.
1: No, I think that's a, it's a great point. And I think it's the question to ask if you want to project forward about what this might mean. Um, So I have not studied in depth how these companies have and have not engaged in all of the various conflicts around the world. And I would suspect that each of them has made a decision of one kind or another that can be criticized regardless of where you stand. Um, so I, I can't profess familiarity with all of the decisions that they've made, whether that be in the information space or just, you know, basic service providing. Well, um, I
0: mean, it's easy to criticize. Let's be honest. Like sitting back here and yeah. be like, Oh, why don't you do this? Well, I mean, it's hard because there is a you I mean, a market, they gotta look out for they have to look out for their company as a whole because if they get involved in too much areas that may shut them out of a market and you know rise to a competitor potentially or even make them a target like cyber crime has been increasing
1: yeah well i so yes all of those things are factoring now they factor into all the decisions right so just to go back to make them a target let's look at ukraine they knew they were a target. If you read there, and again, if you go back to the investor reports, they admit You know, the companies have to list off the risks that they're taking on. And in there, it's like, there's a risk we might get attacked by Russia, <laughs> um, cyber. They were focused in particular on Russian cyber. And Starlink was attacked. They were jammed by the Russians. And they did this really, um, the defense community was really talking about what an impressive, fast um, update they did in order to rectify the situation with the Russian jamming. Um, But this is, regardless of the scenario, they will incur certain risks and they have to have a calculus to determine when is the risk too great. Um, And I don't know that we understand that very well. Um, I, I mean, the case that is obviously the thing that we're not talking about, we're going to talk about is China and sort of how does this factor in when you've got a market like China? How does that change the the dynamics? But if I go back to your other examples of other conflicts around the world where um, it has not been as vocal, I mean, I think on the one hand, the companies have to go through and think about what can they do? What impact can they have um, vis-a-vis the risk they may incur um, but I also, you know, kudos to the activists who are raising these issues and making sure companies are aware that they have the power and they could potentially take action. Ultimately, it's in the power of the company to make that decision. But um, raising the issue that they do have a potential to get engaged is is a worthwhile endeavor. Um, we just have to think through or they have to think through, I should say, the risks that they incur.
0: Well, it's funny. I was actually thinking back to one of my classes I took here um, at Columbia. And one of the things we discussed was kind of the breakdown of how the U.S. infrastructure is protected. So you have, you know, the Department of Homeland Security and uh, CISA. Um, I can't remember actually what the acronym stands for. It's like something infrastructure security agency. Um, uh-huh. Cyber security infrastructure security. I'm messing that up. I do apologize. Sorry,
1: notice. Yeah. Cybersecurity okay. and, <laughs> and infrastructure security. There we, Gen- we go. Jenny's Um
0: it. perfect. Sorry, Jen. Um <laughs> so like they have a responsibility of defending, you know, the 16 areas or infrastructure that we've identified um within the United States. And then you we we have the military um US, US Cyber Command, who's you know in charge of defending DoD networks um from hostile actors as well. Well, I don't know if we really have a response plan be besides you know defending private companies and organizations because they're private and you know they don't have a responsibility to you know support the US government's role necessarily in, in, in any conflict or in any in you know a competition, I guess. Um so I think the question does arise like, oh well, what is the US's US government's responsibility of defending them if if and when they are attacked. And I think that is kind of the the hard part that people don't want to talk about sometimes when it's like, oh, well, you know, pr- Google should do this. OK, well, if Google does that and they become a target of China, Russia, Iran, whomever, what's the U.S. going to do anything? And I think that's something that people don't want to really grapple with.
1: Yeah, or there is potential advantage and sort of a strategic ambiguity about what the U S government may or may not do. Um, so I think we have to take that into account that not being, um, very clear about what we will and will not do provides you with certain flexibility, but, um, but it's also hard to plan when, you know, you don't know what you're going to do. It might affect deterrence. I mean, I think, so to your point, CISA is, um, a really important organization, but they don't defend the industrial base. They try and sort of bring them all together for a sort of a mutual defense, exchanging information, best practices, really impressive organization, but they don't, they don't defend, um, so to speak. And then you're right that in, the military does not have these sorts of cyber defense commitments to, um, to private companies and and it, str- it has struggled with this in the past. I mean, the case that that I found really interesting and I studied a few years ago when I was at the Applied Physics Lab had to do with um, Sony. And so I don't know if you recall, there was this big attack on Sony when they were putting out the... Um, oh,
0: yes, the dictator, I think. Parody, no. yeah, yeah. It
1: was a parody on North Korea. Yep. Um. And so Sony was attacked. A bunch of their data, their computer systems were locked up. There was all this sort of salacious emails that were published that got a lot of publicity. Um, and then there were physical threats against the movie theaters at at one point. So it you know that people started to get pretty scared. It was around the holidays. Um. But it was interesting because the NSA Cybercom they didn't really talk about what was going on. It was this weird situation where it's like, well, these are, this is a movie company. They're not on our list of things to defend. Um, And yeah, you know, people are getting pretty scared and um, yeah, it's a pretty public attack. And so you saw the, at that point, you saw civilian cybersecurity companies coming out and the news, the news was captivated by how the civilian cybersecurity agencies were talking about what was happening and who had done it. And you didn't hear the voice of the government as much. It was definitely not the first one to speak. And it didn't, once the government finally said something, people really paid attention, but it took a while. Um, and, and so that was an interesting foray into this. What are we going to do when these companies are, are threatened? Um, and how do we make that decision about being public about what we're doing or being very private about what we're doing? How do we telegraph in terms of strategy, how do we telegraph to adversaries what we will or will not do um, for deterrence purposes as well? Because given how powerful these companies are, uh, none of us want them to be attacked. Um, we may not make these open commitments of um deterrence but we may have an in, or an open commitment to f- defend them but we do have an interest in deterring attacks against them how do we do that in a way that gives us flexibility um but is also doing right by the people who are putting themselves at risk for things that are clearly national security interest
0: well you actually just reminded me of a uh, an event that took place um i i just looked at the article actually so it was written in WIRE in February of 22. And it was about how North Korea um, was had a hacking campaign where they were targeting security researchers. And a lot of them were based <laughs> in the United States. Um, and part of the, the campaign was to steal tools or exploits or software uh, vulnerabilities um, so they can then use them. Um, so there's one security re- uh, researcher he goes by his uh, handle, P4X, if anyone's interested. Um, basically, he said, he like, hey, this occurred. They didn't get anything, but I alerted the U.S. government and I got no response. Um, so he decided that he was going to hack North Korea. And he actually shut down the internet um, as a response. Uh From what he says, like, hey, like, they they attacked me and I wasn't getting any support from the government. So I decided to hack them back. And according, you know, according to the article, um, he shut down the internet for a while um, in late January of 21, Uh, which, you know, is, is fascinating to think about. It's like, okay, this can actually occur. But it does, you know, provide some insights into that strategic ambiguity in a way where, you know, does the U.S. have a responsibility for individuals um does that only extend to nation states or other actors is this is this you know comp this employee like is his company responsible for it or is he as an individual who has the capability and the willpower to to conduct these operations like take it on himself
1: <laughs> i think i mean individuals are are hard they're also i mean they're capable but they're not as capable as an institution like microsoft or google or amazon or the u.s um, government Or the U.S. government, correct. Um, So I think just to keep it at the level of institutions with pretty considerable resources and power. um, Yeah, I mean, I think we need to have a better understanding of who's going to do what and why um, in those sorts of situations. Because there are, you know, there's benefits and risks on on both sides. But getting to some amount of uh, level of understanding gives you some, um, it makes the situation more stable. As opposed to unpredictable, which, you know, in conflict, unpredictability is the name of the game, but you don't want to be unpredictable on your own side. The the enemy should be unpredictable. You shouldn't, you know, your own actions, you should kind of know where you, um, your assets are, how they're going to be handled, what kinds of decisions are going to be made.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So with that being said, we talk a lot about like public private partnerships, and I feel like this realm is you know ripe for for kind of defining these partnerships or establishing them so we can kind of put a, those guardrails on or understanding the roles and responsibilities of different actors can you give like a maybe a brief overview of kind of where some of these public private partnerships stand um with with the us government and the tech companies or you know maybe where you think they should be working areas that you think they should be working on because of some of the things that the rest of Ukraine conflict has, has brought out.
1: Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think first up public, pri- there's a different bunch of different ways you could look at public private partnership. I mean, if you could just say, well, you know, the entirety of the defense industrial base is a public private partnership in a way. Um, in which case we're talking about like hundreds of thousands of like, I think there's over 200,000 companies that are part of the Dib. Oh, fair. Um, Yes. The so subcontractors it, yeah. of the
0: subcontractor.
1: There's those, there's the big primes, you know, there's um a lot of public-private partnership if you, you know, if you kind of take it in that way. There's also a lot of work on the R&D side, which is what the Center for Security and Emerging Technology is often focused on is, you know, where is the emerging technology coming from? Are we partnering with different institutions? And you can see one of the things we look at, a lot of the research literature and, le- and the data that you can get out of the research literature. And you can see that um, there are whole different, sor- all sorts of different collaborations between private sector researchers and public center interest or public sector researchers. Um, so that sort of thing happens. You've also got things like um, SpaceCom. Space is an interesting domain because it has a lot of civilian assets not just military assets. And you can see, I think at the recent um, spacecom change of command, you know, they're even by name calling out people like Elon Musk and these big satellite companies because they know how important um, the civilian infrastructure is to the to how we operate, how our economy operates, but also how uh, national security may be constrained or enabled. Um, so, and then like we talked earlier about CISA. So there are a lot of different efforts, whether it's in the cyber realm or the space realm, or just the sort of defense industrial base, where there are collaborations, I, normally by contract, sometimes by other sorts of agreements um, to, to try and work together to keep everybody safe and, and stable. I think what's different here is that we don't have those, there's not like a, memorandum of understanding and wartime under UCOM um, that I know of at least. And so focusing this particular conversation on the independent actions that companies might take um, and what that relationship should look like, it may not be a good idea to make it a formalized partnership. I don't know. I think this is why government and industry needs to get together and have this conversation these are multinational corporations. They have lots of competing equities around the world, having a um, memorandum of understanding on, uh, you know, being very explicit about certain actions they may or may not take with the United States military may not help them economically. And that may not help the country. Um, so thinking about how those companies um want to characterize their partnerships is one thing. And then also thinking about how the military may or may not want to formalize or work together is another one. Um, There is, you know, back to this strategic ambiguity, one of the things that Microsoft did is they came out with that Intel report about how there were cyber attacks by the Russians. That was not something that you saw NSA or Cybercom come out and talk about Uh, until a little bit later in the game. And they didn't do a report at all the same way that Microsoft did their report. Um, Was that bad? Was that good? Well, I mean, in a way, it's hard for our nation's Cybercom, to come out with a big public report. It's just not part of their DNA to do a bunch of big unclassified reports. They have a lot of competing equities. They worry about revealing sources and methods. Um, So that's really is bureaucratically challenging for them and it might be strategically not so good. Whereas when a private company does it, well, it's all it's just about Microsoft's product. They're just talking about these control systems. Uh, it's well within their purview of the data that they may have. And it might be obvious kind of how they figured out that that there were intrusions. And so it's great that you have this independent, uncoordinated in a way effort Um, It wasn't completely uncoordinated. If you look at the Microsoft reports, it looks like they did at least chat with Cybercom. But um, it wasn't like a directed thing. And so then Cybercom gets a little bit of distance from that report. They might be able to protect some of their equities, but you still get the word out on the street and can influence at least public opinion about who's to blame for some of the things going on in Ukraine. I hope that answers your question.
0: <laughs> I mean, yes, it does. And I do think like strategic ambiguity is something that is just, anytime you have a multinational corporation that's taking an action on the world stage, you're always going to have these competing you know, priorities and goals. And when it comes to security affairs or conflict, I mean, there's always going to be some ambiguity no matter what. The whole Clausewitzian fog of war is going to come up, not just in the conflict itself, but how people are interpreting what data they are able to receive. And just also recognizing too that, you know, what we are receiving is, you know, a snapshot in time in one area. And yeah. it's it's something that's great. Like I love Maxar's, you know, imagery, for instance, like that's fantastic. Reading through the Microsoft reports, you know, was hugely enlightening. I think just to understand like the capabilities that that were out there, um, that they could even, you know, undertake if if something someone was attacked, but also knowing like Okay, if a private company could do this, what could NSA, Cybercom, whomever, also do with their assets and their capabilities and you know their rules of engagement if uh, conflict were to occur on a larger scale?
1: Yeah, and I think to go back to the earlier point about you know public-private or any kind of a formal public-private partnership. Mm -hmm. While I I focused on the advantages of not having necessarily formal arrangements, um, there are the disadvantages that you just get out of sync and mistakes, you know, that's how mistakes happen. So um one of the things that it's not clear to me that these companies understand is how does the chain of command work in a military operation? Who makes what kinds of decisions and what motivates the military side to make particular decisions. Um, just having an understanding for military strategy, military operations, they don't need to you know, have a master's degree on that subject, but getting, getting greater familiarity may inform the decisions that they make. Because I imagine they all said, oh, we want to do a good thing and we want to do the right thing um, by the cause of democracy, which is great. But sometimes if you reveal information, you could really complicate ongoing military operations. The enemy could change their tactics and, and could really complicate the picture. The timing might be wrong. Um, and so for, for companies to at least, even if they don't have that formal arrangement, have a baseline understanding for how things work when you're in that kind of a conflict, it might inform and help them make more effective decisions.
0: So kind of a, a better understanding of operational security procedures potentially, or like the risk, risk and escalation analysis, for instance.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Right. I mean, I don't know that there are a bunch of folks in these companies who think about escalation ladders um, or the laws of war necessarily. Mm -hmm. I think they, you know, they're all, I think I like to think that they're all good people trying to do the right thing in the world, but they got a lot of problems on their plate. So law of war might not have like risen to the top. Yeah,
0: Absolutely. So when we're kind of talking about present day, we know, what can happen now, potentially in the future, but are there any historical precedences that we we could look back upon and maybe draw lessons from? Potentially, from I mean, we already kind of mentioned like you know Ford was our contractor in World War II to produce a system for the United States. Um, do we kind of see that today with with companies um, outside of maybe the traditional um, defense uh, industrial base or? Or is this kind of like a new is this kind of like a new field because it's not a like physical um, vehicle or weapon system that is directly being used and contracted for?
1: I want to make sure I've understood your question. But so so re-vector me if I don't get it quite right. But I mean, I I do think that I do not think there is good historical precedence here. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of the reason I say that it's not just the contracting piece, it's that we now have this digital realm and the information, you know, I think the information domain is a non-physical domain, partly. Um, and that's just not a plane of war that has existed in quite the way that it exists today. So, you know, ISR um, has existed um, in the past of so gathering intelligence, you know, surveillance reconnaissance, that's existed in the past but um civilian assets that can really push that information out and shift it all around the globe in a digital way it, you know it's one thing when you've got the spy running on his horse back to the command center like there's a lot of limitations on your ability to do that yep. when you can reach out and you know get into someone's system from the comfort of your own home um it's a very different sort of a playing field. So I do think it is without precedent in that partly because of the way that conflict has evolved. Um, But also because, you know, we had this interesting split where it used to be that a lot of the innovations that were relevant to national security came out of United States government and the government funded Mm -hmm. all these labs and, and a lot of basic research. Now you see that a lot of that, R and D innovations coming out of the private sector. So I think that also starts to affect who's got relative strengths, um, in these, in these engagements.
0: I think that's kind of an interesting because I'm thinking of like the, the onset of GPS, a lot of satellite launches, like those were so like out of reach for companies for so long until now we see SpaceX and, you know, everyone else, um, Developing their own rocket systems and shuttles and everything. And NASA's just like, oh, nice. So it almost sounds like I don't want to say like a new way of warfare, but it sounds like there is maybe a new, like a new player on the field that nation states have to take into consideration if they want to, you know, or enter into a, a new conflict. Um Because like, you know, kind of what we've said already is, you know, with Russia, Ukraine, there's like, oh, this is very clear violation of sovereignty. You know, no one's going to let the stand type deal. But I also wonder then if it's, you know, we mentioned it kind of before, we're like, oh, conflict with China breaks out or Taiwan, you know, that honestly, I feel like is maybe a little bit more of a gray area for a lot of companies and, you know, governments even because the U.S. has a strategic ambiguity Kind of policy towards Taiwan, China has the, you know, it's a no, it's a breakaway province from us, we recognize it as our own. Um so in a conflict like that, I find it, it maybe a little more taxing for companies to decide whether or not they're going to choose a side or engage. Um and I always wonder if that's kind of what the the future holds in a way.
1: Yeah. I mean that's I'm curious about that exact same question, Chris, because I think um it I do think you're I think it's fair to say that there's a new player on the field um, and it, or it's a new team on the field, right? The, the players were always there. They just were on our team and we'd like contracted them to be on our team. And when we went into the fight, um, now it's like, you've got three teams on the field and you're not entirely sure what this new third team is going to do, how they're going to make their plays and um, all the, but they're powerful. They're like, they have very clearly identifiable, militarily relevant capabilities. Um, but they, you know it's not clear that they actually want to play the game either. Sometimes they want to play the game. Sometimes they don't want to play the game. They're maybe playing a separate game. I mean, this is all complicated and confusing and important and interesting. Um, so I think projecting forward with this notion that we have to keep them in mind when we go into these operations is absolutely what needs to happen, and then you have to do it in different constructs. So, what does it look like when you're not in what was a pretty clear cut? Clear cut, you know, they went after Ukraine. It was a violation of sovereignty. What do we? How do we think about it when there are other situations that are a bit more gray? How do we think about deterring attacks on our companies? How do we think about what could essentially be thought of as gray zone operations against our companies? So if you're familiar with own and operations and it's this notion that we're not really crossing a line of war but we're doing something to reshape the international order and hopefully not provoke a war um, how do you use companies in that particular game I think we we have to worry about that um, and then depending again on the context as you said what's going to motivate that company how in some regards they might be stabilizing forces because they have many different, connections, and they can maintain those connections in a way that a state may not be able to maintain those connections. Um, but in other instances, that might be really problematic when the United States government is, you know, attempting to do something for the international order, and the company's got a different set of motivators and interests. So I do think you're right, we've got to look forward, consider these this as something that is different. There are There's a new, I like how you, I think you've got me on this. There's a new team on the field. Um, What are their capabilities and limitations? What are their motivations? And how might they get played off between the state players that are in the fight?
0: So if there's any uh, PhD students or people who want to do a PhD out there, this is a great field of topic for you. You combine ethics, technology development, the rule of war. Um, Fantastic dissertation topics. Um, but for other people, uh, I mean, yeah, this is definitely something I think is, is a fascinating realm just to ponder about because of everything we we've kind of discussed so far. It, we, we don't know. It, this is this is really the, I would say probably the first time where companies really have a huge say in how war or intelligence operations or influence operations are conducted on the stage today.
1: Yeah. Well, um, so let me plus one to your, for PhD thesis or anybody who's working on a master's degree as well. I think it's a great topic to look at and try and just to characterize the motivations to characterize just how powerful these companies are. I don't think we've really um, come to terms with how relevant they are in conflict. Um, And I would say that, you know, the Center for Security and Emerging Technology is a great place to work. (laughs) So thinking about um, working on emerging technology and conflict. Um, so, so that's true. I think, you know, when you come out of the academic realm or to complement the academic realm, I should say, that getting policymakers together to talk about their motivations, their concerns, their perceptions and assumptions. Um, I think that's, there's, there's just some conversations that need to start happening. And then from those conversations, I think both sides can make, better plans forward as to how they're going to, like, what's the line of communication? How are we going to attempt to just make sure we understand each other in the midst of a crisis, much less, you know, could we have an agreement or a public-private partnership? I mean, I think it's, I just want to, I guess, reiterate that I think academia has got a lot to contribute here. And there's a ton of great work on multinational corporations and, and how they factor into international relations. Um, But this does seem to be a growing issue that academia can address and that they can help policymakers to make steps forward to do better in the next conflict, or at least people, I wouldn't say do better. I think there are a lot of great things that have happened uh, in terms of the response, but we should be prepared before the next thing comes up.
0: Absolutely. Well, Amelia, I know we're coming really short on our time right now. Um, I just want to say thank you so much for being with us here today. Um, but if people want to follow your work or connect with you on social media, where can they find uh, you or your material?
1: That is very kind, thanks. So I am on Twitter, I guess like everybody else. Um, and then the other place, if you're, so we put things out on Twitter, but you should follow the Center for Security and Emerging Technology. Um, they are Edu, where we have a whole variety of different reports on AI and bio and cyber. Um, but those are probably the two best ways. So either at Emmy Provesco or the CSET website.
0: Fantastic. And for our listeners, we'll definitely put the link to the foreign affairs article, the CSET website, and uh, Amelia's uh, Twitter handle in our show notes for you to follow. Well, Amelia, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you so much, Chris. It was really fun to talk to you.
0: If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a five star review as it does help expand our audience. If you'd like to support the podcast, please share it with your friends and post it on social media. To learn more and catch all of our episodes, please follow us at Columbia JIA on Instagram and Twitter. You can also follow JIA's updates by searching Journal of International Affairs on LinkedIn. And last but not least. Be sure to check out our website for more global affairs content linked in the episode description. Thanks again
1: and see you next time.